You know, as, as Jerry mentioned earlier, this is the final Sunday of Advent. Advent goes through Christmas Eve and, um, and then into Christmas. And, and I was just recently, um, I was recently, where was I? They were doing these uh, 12 days of Christmas. Oh, I know. I was actually visiting Charlene Monroe in, um, in the home where she's living in Norwood. I forget the name of that place. What is it? Ellis? Yeah, she was in good spirits. She says hello to everyone, but they were doing the 12 days of Christmas, and they were on, they were on day five or six or something, and I thought, what, what's going on here? She said, oh, it's the 12 days of Christmas, counting down to Christmas. So just so you know, 12 days of Christmas starts on Christmas and goes for 12 days. So we're in Advent until Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas. So then the 12 days of Christmas goes to Epiphany on January 6th. So if you ever wondered about that song, that's just a freebie thrown in, no cost to you. But here we are, last Sunday of Advent, and we're looking at the fourth person, the fourth woman who's mentioned in the genealogy of Matthew as he looks at um, the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so we've had this sermon about uh, Tamar, a sermon about Rahab. Sonia did an incredible job last week. If you didn't catch it, look online on Ruth. And then we get to... Then we get to a woman named Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba is actually kind of different than the other women that we look at, uh, in part because in the genealogy of Matthew, it's, her name's not even mentioned. She's just referred to uh, as this woman who essentially committed adultery with King David and had a son who was King Solomon. And, and it's almost like her name, she's, she's almost like a, a fill-in. In this sense, in the story of, of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, we kind of get a more full picture of who these women are, uh, particularly Ruth. I mean, my goodness, when you, she gets a book with her name on it, you know? And Bathsheba, she's kind of in the background in a lot of these stories, and there's a lot that we don't know about her or what happened in this story. But I want to read it to you, and I want to talk about what does this tell us about joy? Because if you look at the story of, of Bathsheba, it doesn't seem to be a lot of, a lot of joy in it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging story in a lot of ways. And it actually makes, it's, it's difficult for us as believers sometimes because, you know, David is the, the forerunner to Christ and we don't like seeing David do bad things. And then uh, we see this confusion in the story and conflict in the story. And we don't always know what to do with it. And what does it tell us about joy? And so what I'd like to do is just kind of dive in to this story of Bathsheba. And then when we get to the end, reflect a little bit. And I think we can actually, uh, I don't want us to, to stay, be kept too long. I think we can do this in kind of quick order, not because the story doesn't matter, but because it's so straightforward in some ways, even though there's a lot we don't know. But let me read for us. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11 as we begin. And if you have your Bibles, open up and read along. Uh, this story is, is, a lot of us know it, uh, but let's get into it together. So it's talking about King David now. At this point in King David's life, he's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. He's the king of Israel, uh, the king of a, of a united kingdom. So there's no Israel and Judah at this point. Uh, and he's the king that God appointed through Samuel to be someone after his own heart, uh, to be a better king than King Saul was, who did not live by the Spirit, who did not follow uh, the Lord. David was a king who followed the Lord. And it says, In the spring, 
At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So already we start to see seeds of problems here in this story. David is not where he's supposed to be. And one evening David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And this was not particularly necessarily an uncommon thing to do. Um, and out in the open air, and typically a roof would be a place that would be uh, not visible from other places, but David's up in his palace, and if you know anything about Jerusalem, it is a hill, and he's at the top, right? So he, he can see down. And it says, this woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man he sent said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, Iliam was one of David's advisors. So this is a woman who's growing up uh, in probably grew up in the court, grew up around, you know, in politics, grew up the, the daughter of an advisor and is married to uh, somewhat uh, not highest level general in the army, but, you know, a ranked man of the army, of David's army. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now this story already has a pretty big wrinkle in it, doesn't it? Um, you know, growing up, I heard this story, David and Bathsheba, and how David commits adultery and all this stuff. Uh, but you know, the, the text is not too clear on what really happens here. Right? And we have to ask the question, what, what was really going on? with David here and with Bathsheba. Was Bathsheba a willing participant in this encounter? Do you know, was she someone thinking, oh, you know, I'm married to this guy who's got a pretty good job in the military, but oh, the king, the king's interested in me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take advantage of this. Or was she someone who had no interest in David, but here she is, relatively powerless, a woman, her husband's off to war, no one there to protect her, the one who should be there to protect her, the king, is the one who is calling her to be with him. Uh, we just don't know. So I don't know if this moment was one that she felt devastated by, if she felt violated by. I don't know if this is a moment that she's thinking, kind of scheming and thinking, ooh, what can I make of this? And look, I'm even pregnant. I really don't know. Because the story focuses so much on David and not on Bathsheba. We don't, we don't know what was going inside, inside for her, but she was pregnant, and she let David know. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. Now, why does David want Uriah to go home? To cover his own sin, right? If David goes home, sleeps with his wife, then no one will know that Bathsheba has had a child from someone other than her husband, and nothing can point back to David. So he says, why, why, have you, uh, why did you not go home? Haven't you just come home from a mil military campaign? Why didn't you go home? 
And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So I don't know how righteous Uriah is, uh, but he is a person of principle. He is a person of character, and he does put his obligations and commitments and camaraderie with, with uh, David's men above his own interests, above his own preferences, and above his own comfort. David said to him, Stay one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah, with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So now David is, at minimum, going from an adulterer, potentially, I mean, if we're just going to be really honest, a rapist, to now becoming a murderer. We don't like this story, right? There's nothing, nothing in this story that we feel good about. So Joab, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Possibly these other men died also just so that Uriah could be killed. Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the, uh, the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the walls that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And the messenger was sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back at the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David said, told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought into his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You know, I can't imagine um, how David must have felt, how Bathsheba must have felt to know, again, particularly David, to know that his actions resulted in the death of someone who was honorable, faithful, and loyal to him. That he had done it in a way that was deceitful. He had done it in a way that was, uh, by all accounts, a flagrant violation of those Ten Commandments that we read, a flagrant violation of his covenant that he had with the Lord, uh, just a wholly unacceptable 
deceitful, um, arrogant, uh, self-protective behavior, right? And this is the David that later God says, here's a man after my own heart. The, the rest of the story goes on. Basically, Bathsheba bears this son, but he's, he's, he dies. And David mourns, and the people come to him, and he says, here, you know, take some food, take some water. He's, he's, he just can't eat and sleep. And finally, the boy dies. David puts his mourning away because there's no more hope for him. And then he goes to comfort Bathsheba, and he sleeps with her again, this time as his wife, and she has a son named Solomon. And David turns out actually not to be a particularly great dad. Uh, he has an, uh, I would say, uh, how, would a, how would a counselor describe the relationship between David and his sons? Dysfunctional at best. Uh, one of them tries to kill him, to take his throne, uh, one of his sons rapes one of his half-sisters. Uh, one of his sons tries to take the throne uh, after he's, as he's dying, before he's dead. Uh, and then that same son then takes one of his concubines after he's dead to be his wife. Uh, so dysfunctional might be an appropriate word for David's relationship with his children. Uh, but in the end, as he's dying, and this is in 1 Kings 1, if you want to turn there, he has a, he has a son who is uh, trying to take over the throne. And then David calls for Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba and, and Nathan, who worked for David, They've been plotting to get Solomon on the throne. And uh, she tells David, Hey, don't you remember that you promised your throne to Solomon? Now, there's no record of this in the Bible anywhere, so I don't know if he's old and doesn't remember, if, if he said it at one point and we just don't have a record of it, but it actually reminds me an awful lot of uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh, where Esau is the oldest son. Esau is the one who's going to receive Isaac's blessing. And Jacob, with the help of his mother, tricks his father into a birthright and a blessing. And I kind of wonder if this is the same thing going on here. Bathsheba convinces David that he had promised her that Solomon would be on the throne. So the king, in verse, in verse 29 of 1 Kings 1, David takes an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my palace. Now, here's the interesting thing. Bathsheba shows up in the story where Solomon's born, and Bathsheba shows up in the story where Solomon becomes king. But she's virtually unmentioned, if not a, totally unmentioned, everywhere in between. She's almost like a, a, a necessary figurehead in the story. It's almost like the Bible doesn't, the, the story doesn't even treat her as like a full person. And it makes me so sad to, to see that. Um, here is this woman who has committed adultery. 
she becomes a widow, she loses a son, in the official record, she's not mentioned again except to tell David's story and to tell Solomon's story, right? She's almost a, uh, almost a, a cast-aside figure in the story. And in the story, she, she loses hope, uh, she loses a son, and then finally she loses her king. She loses David. So it's not a story of joy, Right? And it strikes me that in all the stories that we've looked at, all these important women who are worth mentioning in the genealogy of Jesus, um, is that you've got this woman who is a widow, Tamar, who becomes a prostitute to have a son for the promise with her father-in-law. Okay? Dysfunctional. You've got Rahab, who's a prostitute, who is a traitor to her country and her people, and then becomes a part of the nation of Israel by lying and deceiving people about where the spies are. It's a little dysfunctional. You've got Ruth. Ruth's like the gem of the bunch, right? But she's a widow has no son. Do you see a, you see a trend here? Uh, she forsakes her, not, she's not a traitor, but she forsakes her people, her nation, to follow Naomi and Naomi's God. And then you've got Bathsheba, who is an adulterer, maybe. Maybe not a willing participant. Maybe just a total victim. Uh, but man, she knows how to take lemons and turn them into lemonade. I mean, she's a schemer. There's a lot of dysfunction. But in all these stories, God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, right? The Godhead. They were pleased not only to use these sordid events to bring about the first advent of Jesus, right? Because... Remember, uh, Tamar is the great-great-great-grandmother of, you know, great-great-great-great-grandmother in the line of David. Rahab is in the line of David. Ruth is in the line of David. Bathsheba is the father of Solomon, so the line of Jesus. All of these women are in the line of Jesus. All these women God used to bring the promised Messiah. And Jesus was not ashamed to call them sisters. In the book of Hebrews, we read in chapter 2 that Jesus was not ashamed to call you and me brothers and sisters. You know, uh, this idea in, and I'm just going to turn there because it's such a beautiful passage. Uh, the book of Hebrews makes this point to show that Jesus is the eternal God. You know, Jesus is not some person who was born that God used in a powerful way to somehow become the Messiah or become the Son of God. It says that Jesus, is in chapter 1 of Hebrews, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. This is not someone who, who didn't exist and then came to exist when He was born. 
By the way, I just read a recent survey. Uh, almost half of American Christians believe that Jesus came into existence 2,000 years ago when he was born of Mary. But what Hebrews and so many other passages teach us is that Jesus is eternal. The Son has always existed. And there was just a point in time where he became human. But before that, he was fully God. This says the exact uh, representation of the being of God, sustaining all things by his powerful word, meaning that none of the world would have even existed if it weren't for Jesus he had to exist before he was born. And he's greater than the angels. And they're saying all these wonderful things about him. And then it says that he became like us. And, you know, there's a problem there. Because Jesus is all these wonderful things. Jesus is perfect and holy. And, and then he kind of steps into this broken, dysfunctional world that we inhabit and it just, I don't know why, it reminds me of this line in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is not a movie I recommend necessarily, uh, but it's really funny. And when I was a kid, I watched it way too many times. I had no business watching it at that age. Uh, but there I was watching, and there's this part where uh, these, I, I mean, there's so many illustrations, but there's this part where they're like collecting mud. And there's this part where they're dragging dead people out and putting them on a cart. You know, it's just like filth and death and grime. And this guy says, bring out your dead, clank, bring out your dead. And they bring this guy out, and he's not dead yet. But, he, but they're like, can you help me out? I'm not coming back till Tuesday. And they hit him on the head and put him on the cart. It's just really bad. But in the midst of that, King Arthur comes through, and they say, oh, he must be a king. So how do you know? He's not covered in filth, by the way, that was edited for children. He's not covered in filth. That's how you know he's a king. But Jesus isn't that kind of king. Jesus comes into all the filth. He says, you know what kind of grandmothers I'm going to have? Let me tell you. I'm going to have grandmothers that are, by the way, probably Ruth was barren. That's why she didn't have children even though she had been married already. Miraculous birth, right? Just like Rachel was barren. Just like Rebecca was barren. Just like Sarah was barren. Just like all these women in the genealogy of Jesus were barren, and yet they have these miraculous sons. And not only that, but you know what? You know who my grandmothers are going to be? They're going to be prostitutes. And they're going to be adulterers. And they're going to be schemers. My goodness, Tamar was a schemer. She's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to disguise myself and I'm going to sleep with my father-in-law. How's that for a plan to keep God's promised son, uh, you know, still in the works? I mean, just craziness. Uh, I've got, he's got Gentiles. He's got idol worshipers. He's got pagans. He, I mean, he's got the, his lineage is crazy, but it's perfect for us because we're all in the filth. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah. Let's go in the filth. Don't even get me started on where he was born. Right? That's next week. And so as I was reflecting on Bathsheba, I'm like, this isn't a joyful story. Well, how do we bring joy out of this? And then it's like, I feel like God just was like, hey, McFly, you know? 
the joy of Advent is found in God's great love for sinners. God's incredible, gracious love for sinners. Imagine if God had not promised that Jesus was coming back again. If you were to look at the world around you and say, is Jesus coming back again? And God had not promised it. You might be with me in thinking, I don't know if he wants to come back to this. Would you come back to this? Have you seen? <laughs> Have you seen what's been going on? It's not exactly, uh, you know, like the, the welcome mats out for Jesus. You know, I was listening to this podcast on Christianity Today on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. If you haven't listened to it, it's a really heavy story, but it's really important and well-told story about about uh, this dysfunction and and brokenness and arrogance and and bullying that happens in the church and, and they use one particular church to illustrate it. But there was this moment in the podcast near the end where one of the guys says, you know, if Jesus came back today, I think many religious leaders would do the same thing the Pharisees did. We would realize that if Jesus came, then we would lose our power and we would kill him. And I thought, man, almost how could that not be true? There's so much filth. I don't use that in a judging word, as a judging word. I'm saying like, hey, let's just be honest. You know, you know I'm so often ashamed of myself and ashamed of the church. It's almost like, Jesus, don't come back now. Don't catch us in this. My goodness, can you give us a little more time so we can get our stuff together? You know, and there are times when I don't even want to claim these people as brothers and sisters, but look what Jesus says. Or look what is said about him. In Hebrews 2, and bringing many sons, this is verse 10, of Hebrews 2, and bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. People that I'm ashamed of, Jesus isn't ashamed of. People that I don't, I'm, I kind of want to say, whoa, 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 they're not in my group. Jesus says, well, they're in my group. You know, the people that we would put in the closet, you're like, oh, you know, old grandma who was an adulterer and a prostitute and an idol worshiper, we keep her off in the back. And Jesus is like, no, let's bring her out here and let's talk about her. Praise the Lord for this woman. It's incredible. Jesus claims Tamar, the prostitute. The widow who deceives her father-in-law into impregnating her. I mean, this is crazy. Jesus claims Rahab, the foreigner, idol worshiper, prostitute, liar, treasonous, uh, 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 lying woman who, by the way, lies and is a treat and a traitor because of God, because of the plan of God, because of the kingdom of God coming, he claims her. 
And my goodness, Jesus certainly claims Ruth, the impoverished Moabite, whose, uh, whose people, by the way, the Moabites, were cut off from the assembly of the Lord according to the word of God. They had no right. Even their children and their grandchildren had no right in the assembly of the Lord. But then her great-grandson becomes the king of Israel. Jesus, Jesus claims Ruth. And Jesus claims Bathsheba. This woman who is either an adulterer or a rape victim. And then who took that on, took that, I mean, she, she took it and then used it to her and her son's advantage to the fulfillment of God's plan. By the way, God promised David a kingdom, a kingdom forever. He made the same promise to Solomon. God affirms his love for Solomon when he's born and when he becomes king. This is the man who built the temple for the worship of the Lord so they no longer had to make sacrifices for God in a tent but they could make sacrifices for God in a stone structure with, with gold and bronze and, and beautiful decorations and uh, you know all this, all this beauty and splendor that would be worthy of the Lord. And Solomon says to that God, you know, you're the God of the universe. How can we hope to have you reside in this temple? And the glory of God descends on the temple. And God says, I receive you. By his presence, he says, I receive you. And then the craziest part of all is that Jesus receives you and Jesus receives me. We who are at best ambivalent in our trust, in our faith, in our obedience, at best. At worst, we're running from God, right? In our best, we're, we're waffling, wavering. We whose sin is before us daily, daily, We who have no more claim to righteousness and often less of a claim to righteousness than those idolaters and pagans and prostitutes and adulterers and schemers. All of us, you and me, are claimed as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And so I almost want to have a movie where they're saying, bring out your dead, clank. Bring out your dead, clank. And then King Jesus walks by and they say, oh, that must be the king. How do you know it's the king? Because he's covered in filth. But none of it is his own. It's yours and it's mine and he's taken it. And then they look down and they're wearing garments of white because Jesus came. Jesus came and he left them his righteousness and took with him their unrighteousness. I want that movie to be made. I want that picture in my head. I want that story to be told. 
What is the joy of Christmas? Or the joy of Advent? Or the joy of the, the coming of Christ past and the coming of Christ in the future? It's that God is pleased to call you his family. It's that Jesus is not ashamed to call you and me brother and sister. The joy of Advent is that none of us deserve this, and God does it anyway. So church, as you go in this last week before Christmas, and as you're doing your preparations, maybe you're feeling overwhelmed, maybe you're excited, maybe there's joy there, maybe, maybe there's sadness for, you know, this can be a hard time of year too. I encourage you, both reflect on and take stock of the reality that God loves you, that God accepts you, that God is not ashamed of you, that he delights in you, and that whatever else Advent and Christmas mean, it means that we have joy. We have joy because the God who, by all accounts, should have rejected us has made us his own. Amen? Amen. Well, Lord, I just thank you. I have nothing else. Just gratitude, Lord. Gratitude, joy, love for you. God, you did not have to do this. You didn't. And yet, it seemed that you were pleased to do it. Pleased. Not just willing, but pleased. So Lord, help us to receive that love. Help us to know, Lord, that, that we are not able to come to you because of something in us, but because of something profoundly uh, unique in you, that you are, in essence, love. That, you, that every part of your being uh, carries grace and mercy and forgiveness. Lord, that even in your judgment, you're gracious. Lord, that even uh, when we turn from you, you keep calling out to us, inviting us back. And that you continue to receive us as your family. Lord, there's no greater gift no greater gift than this. No greater gift than Jesus Christ. That he would lay down his life for us while we were still his enemies. While we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. That he gave his life for us so that we could be called the sons and daughters of God. Praise you, Lord. Praise you. And may that joy that joy fill our hearts this Christmas season. May that joy carry us through, even amongst the losses that we might feel, particularly at this time of year. May that joy outshine the joy of presents and gifts, uh, which are just really uh, reflections of the gift that you've given us already through Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your gospel. And as Tony said, you know, you're, you're not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And Lord, we are not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God, power of God for each and every one of us who believe in it.
to be freed from sin, to be restored to relationship with our Creator and our loving Father. We are not ashamed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.